Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. Today we're joined by theatre director, composer, journalist, broadcaster and DJ Matthew Zia, who is currently directing Blue Orange here at The Young Vic. Matthew is the Associate Artistic Director at the Manchester Royal Exchange. He previously directed The Sound of Yellow and won the Genesis Future Directors Award with Siswe Banzi is Dead at The Young Vic. Hello. Hello. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up. Uh, so my name is Matthew Zia. I grew up in East London in Leytonstone and then moved to Forest Gate when I was a little bit older with my mum. Uh, it was very much a single parent household but I did have the support of my grandfather my mother's father uh, also in the house so yeah I guess it felt like everyone else was growing up in exactly the same way mm-hmm. as I was at the time but then you grow up and realize that you've had quite a particular unique upbringing um, so we were certainly poor uh, I was certainly brown uh, there was a lot of diversity in the area which was nice so again I wasn't aware of being poor or being brown until I got a bit older. Uh, and then that started to inform, I guess, my politics uh, and, and music started to creep into my life, which influenced my politics even more. Uh-huh. Uh, my mum was a child of the, well, she was born in the 50s, but I guess that means she came of age in the 70s. So she had a bit of a spirit of revolution uh-huh. uh, within her. She was quite radical. Uh, there are pictures of her at someone's wedding, pregnant with me, uh, with her hair in cane rows. Ginger, cane rose. Uh, strong look. Yes, yeah, very strong look. Uh, but I guess, I guess, it, yeah, it's the mixing, melting pot of East London and mm-hmm. everything that that gave me at the time. And at what age did you reach um, or become aware of your social position? Was it like uh, a moment, like an awakening almost? I think I'm still becoming aware of my social position and trying to challenge it and change yeah. it and redefine it. Um, yeah, not until... I guess it's really interesting. I think I, I, to kind of jump into theatre, uh, my local theatre was Theatre Royal Stratford East, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of helped redefine the, the theatrical landscape in the 50s and 60s, 70s under Joan Littlewood, uh, putting working class stories on stage. When Philip Headley took it over, he put more black and Asian work on stage than any other theatre company was doing in the country at that time. And that's when I walked through the doors. And so I walked into a theatre that... I felt was prepared to accept me and I and I didn't see the invisible membrane across the door that lots of theatres kind of have that keeps uh-huh. certain people out and let certain groups of people in. Um, so even the things I did then and, and the work I was doing with the BBC, there was nothing that told me that I was from a lower class or that there were these, these issues of social mobility that maybe I couldn't have because of where I'd been born and, and what my circumstances of... of um, life were at that time mm-hmm. um so i guess not really until i was about 26 27 when mm-hmm. i left the bbc and i started talking to other theaters and realizing that everybody had these really interesting backgrounds or well, they felt interesting to me everyone everyone had been to university for a start i mm-hmm. didn't even know i could go to university when i was younger um so yeah it, it's a gradual dawning and i'm still realizing it and it's 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 a life project it's a life project <laughs> but it, it's complex because it does lead to all sorts of shame and uh uh confusions of identity and having a black father that i didn't know also mm-hmm. meant they were a kind of confused identity so i latched onto michael jackson and lenny henry and these people that were on tv very early in my life mm-hmm. um and i guess all of my work is is 
an attempt at trying to unpick lots of that. Yeah. Ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, like moving on to your work, can you talk to us about Sizwe Banzi is Dead, which was at the Young Vic in the past 2014 <laughs> yeah that sounds right yeah it had a a, a second coming yep. as well which is really exciting for um for you <laughs> very exciting for me yeah. yep uh, hopefully exciting for anyone who got to see it who didn't get to see it the first time yeah. and then we went took it on tour um so i just recently a little bit of context prior to that so theater Royal stratford east is where i had my upbringing my theatrical upbringing mm-hmm. uh at the age of 18, I was asked to join the board of directors. So I had this real understanding of theatre, but one theatre, uh, one very particular theatre that operates like no theatre I've ever been in since, I guess. Um, but I felt I'd, I'd become associate director there and I'd done lots of readings, but I'd never had my own show on that I kind of pick up from from the start and take it all the way through to production. Um, so I left Stratford East and I came here to the Young Vic and I assisted David Lan on a show called Blackter, which was about the life of a black actor or the life of a, a group of black actors all trying to find their way to the top, as it were, um, which meant I got to know David and David got to know me, which I think was useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then applied for the Regional Theatre Young Director Scheme and successfully got that and moved up to Liverpool where I became resident director at the Everman and Playhouse Uh, and then cheekily whilst on my attachment in Liverpool applied for the Genesis Future Directors Award Mm -hmm. uh, which I won with Sizwe Banzi is dead Um, and I guess there are a number of things basically what I've worked out is that what people are after is articulation can you articulate your ideas on why you should be making this piece of work here Mm -hmm. now for contemporary society in London or wherever it happens to be. Um, Especially because it's a South African or Zimbabwean play? South African, yeah. Athel Fugard uh, wrote it in 74. Mm. Um, uh, And it's it's such a brilliant kind of... um, It's explosive, you know. It's small and compact and full of tension and the stakes are sky high because you're dealing with existence ultimately. Will this man abandon his existence and his name, which of course in African societies means a lot more than it does here Mm -hmm. to ancestral lineage and things like that. Uh, So would he abandon his name and take on the identity of a dead man in order to feed his family and to survive? Mm -hmm. So that's the the crux of it. Um, But with my production, and I guess with lots of my productions, I'm really interested in making active audiences, as I call them. Okay. Um, so trying to take it as far away from the cinematic experience as possible. So cinema is absolutely passive. Yeah, you, you just can, sit there and receive. You just receive, just uh-huh. receive. You can get up and leave and come back and carry on receiving. Uh, I want people to be leaning forward more intensely across a two-hour period until they almost fall onto the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going, what is it that primes an audience? What is it that makes an audience sit up and listen in a different way Mm -hmm. Uh, and a lot of that for me is about actively throwing them into the play who are they what is the role that you have to play what is the decision that you have to make as an audience member coming Mm -hmm. to experience this work um and 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 i don't ever want it to be gimmicky and if it ever feels gimmicky then then we need to investigate and a lot of work goes into it there's a similar thing with with Blue Orange, mm-hmm. there was a similar thing with Into the Woods, a similar thing with Scrappers. Um, it's not always on incoming. Sometimes things happen during the show that mm-hmm. suddenly pull you out of the comfort zone or whatever it is. Uh, but with Sizway, set in apartheid era South Africa, uh, I thought it was imperative that we segregated the audience on incoming based on racial lines, but not based on true racial lines, based on perceived racial lines mm-hmm. as they would have been 
at the time. Yeah. Um, so Sibusisi Mamba was dressed as a, a South African police officer and was just going, uh, Blancus, Blancus, And the experience for the audience was exactly the same, other than the fact that you either sat on the left or you sat on the right of the seating bank and there was a bit of rope down the middle. Yeah, and you can imagine as well with um, people having arrived in, you know, interracial mm-hmm. groupings. Mm-hmm. It kind of like Black, really mixed race. Uh, white mothers, mixed race children, exactly. white fathers, mixed race children. It's yeah. um, fascinating. And ultimately, we can't enforce it. It's not the actual law. It mm-hmm. would be absolutely rude. We'd be hauled into court if we really segregated audiences. So it's a game. Yeah. But it's fascinating how compliant people are. Um, one, because they're theatre audiences and they just do what they're told. <laughs> uh, but two, humans are really compliant. Stick a sign up saying, yeah. no blacks. And watch how many white people would just kind of bow their head and walk down that path and another path that says blacks only and how many black people just walk down and bow their head. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then hearing conversations of people going, I I just did it. I didn't even think about it. it. I just did it. And that is how easy it would have been Mm -hmm. for 200 years or however long. Yeah. And how did you um, try to create an active audience for Blue Orange? Uh, So I... uh, Jeremy Herbert hates me for calling it this, but I call it an ideological sheep dip. Okay. Uh, so, like, you know, the sheep dip that the sheep go through before they're sheared, oh, yeah. uh, where they're disinfected and they're just like <laughs> in and out and immediately and they haven't even got a choice. Uh, so you funnel them into a single corridor. Uh, and what happens with us is there are a number of things working to make you active, I guess. Um, and it forces... So what that did... Sorry, jump back to Sisway quickly. It forces you as an audience member to have a political response, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's compliance, uh, rejection, aggression. You have some response, uh, whether you, you're frustrated but you don't say anything. Um, so with Blue Orange, I guess the idea was to kind of permit voyeurism mm-hmm. uh, as part of it uh, and then evoke particular memories, senses of place and time. Uh, and ultimately, what the sheep dip should do in a really quick, brief way is disorientate you uh, and slightly institutionalise you. Okay. Um, so you go through this corridor and the first thing you hear in the corridor, first of all, you smell the bleach. Uh, and there are little sponges secreted around, soaked in bleach, and mm-hmm. they clean the floors 10 minutes before everyone goes in. Um then you've also got like just the insipid colours of the walls, absolutely yeah. horrific, kind of pastely blues and greens. Um, I've always said, having been to loads of mental health units, they are the worst places yeah. on earth for anyone to get better from anything. You never recover in those places. Uh, then you, and there's what I call shit art on the wall, so just like <laughs> bog standard IKEA prints sort of thing. Um, yep, yep, a single, but like badly printed as well. You can see it's been done on a computer. Um, And then you go into the space itself and the space is an exact replica of the real spaces that we went and saw. It looks disorganised. There's nothing personal about it. It has no personality. It doesn't feel lived in. It feels used like Mm -hmm. a space that people exist in but not lived in. It doesn't feel warm and comfortable and enveloping. or nurturing in any or way. Or nurturing, yeah. And then there's other things. So someone smokes in there before the show starts and they peel lots of oranges. But it's all these things to kind of get your senses going. And then you come out and there's this really confusing, you're east, you're on the east bank, but see F700. So it's all very confusing, which is what it would be like to be in an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, these high windows. So as you're filing through the room and then you arrive looking down on the room like a boxing ring, mm-hmm. 
so again, you're absolutely given permission to be a voyeur in this space because you can see into the windows of the room that you just walked through and you can still see people walking through that room and then you realise that room is the same as the room that the action is going to take place in. Mm -hmm. So it's about the contract, I guess, that you set up with the audience at the very top of the show. Wow, that's fascinating. What is their role? Who are they, What are they here to do? And I remember working with, with Jeremy and we were watching it in dress rehearsals and just going, it doesn't feel right, does it? There's something missing. Oh, the audience. <laughs> like, they're such a part of the design. Yeah. It's all about this mass of people looking down mm -hmm. on these crabs in a bucket or these two doctors fighting over the spoils of war yeah. using this man to bolster their own arguments. Like, having watched the show a couple of times now, I'm still... I, I'm still processing it. It's like one of those things that you're never really quite sure what you've just witnessed. Mm -hmm. And I think the importance of an audience being there as well because you hear people laughing at certain points. So you're like, oh, I didn't necessarily think that was funny myself. Yeah. In what way did you... Or what were your expectations of the audience in their reaction to moments of humour that are ultimately just making fun of mental health mm. and uncomfortable laughter around race? Yeah. And how... Like, what do you think uh, about It's that? a conversation I had with Mickey uh, Mikhail Keamo, who's the assistant director on the show. Mm -hmm. um, she has personal, not herself, but, but family members or friends who have had experiences with mental health issues. So she's incredibly sensitive to it. Um, and in the rehearsal room, we treated it with the utmost seriousness. It was, it's a play about a really disturbed, vulnerable young man mm -hmm. uh, and two doctors and and so if you talk to any of them none of them would say that their character is racist you know they all have to do what they believe their character would do and it is right and correct and and accurate and, and a truthful portrayal um, and then we took it over to dress rehearsals and previews and the laughter was just immense and you're mm -hmm. going wow and then I remember saying to Mickey well we can't control the laughter there is nothing that we can do mm -hmm. You know, we can we can deaden something that actually is funny, uh, and it is funny, and it, and and it's not always that one one people can't read if Christopher is. There's an ambiguity about his mental health, mm -hmm. which is central to the play. The play kind of only works if you d can't really tell until the very end, where you might get a bit of a sense of it. Um, but even then, you're still going. Well, should he be here or not? So he he must be ambiguous in his behavior uh, and therefore some people don't know often that they're laughing at mental health when mm -hmm. he's having these explosions or, or doing weird weird things that just sit slightly outside of whatever accepted uh, and you can't see me doing air quotes normal behavior is uh, so yeah and, and I guess they're laughing at the dynamics of it and they're laughing at the like you say, the awkwardness of it and how tricky certain people are trying to navigate their way out of mm -hmm. things they've said or things that have been perceived in the wrong way or taken in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So I think it's complex. I don't think it's as simple as people laughing at mental health. But mm -hmm. I, I certainly don't laugh at all the places that other people laugh. Yeah. Um, and there's one moment, and it, it shocks me when people laugh, when they're both on their knees kind of begging him to lean towards their version yeah. of... Yeah truth stay or go uh and he says sharp just sharp just sharp i don't even know who i am anymore mm -hmm. you're driving me fucking insane or whatever it is and he throws and then he's and he's almost in tears yeah that's the breakdown and there are certain points where people have laughed there and i'm like wow you just don't care yeah or get it or get it or get it yeah 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 and it's complex and, and it's not down to me to tell people 
what they should laugh at, what they should cry yeah, out. Yeah, you present it's, the work. You present the work. Yeah. It's a piece of art and mm-hmm. people respond. In the same way that having keeping Daniel in what we're calling the moat, uh, the space around the stage between audience and stage, uh-huh. uh, where Christopher is banished to every time he leaves the room. Different people see all sorts of different things in there that I hadn't seen, and I go, oh, nice, interesting reading. Yeah. It's like, the, let the work speak for itself and let it like live on. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Completely. cool. Um, and in your casting, because like, they are a dy- like, really dynamic trio, they work so well together. Mm-hmm. What, I mean... They work so well together because they don't work well at all together. That's what it is. (laughs) I mean, they're brilliant, but they are very much three individuals. There's not a single similarity between any of them Mm -hmm. uh, in the way they work, in their process of creating character and being on stage and their warm-up and everything about them is different. Um, But I think that's what the play asks for, in Mm -hmm. a way. Um, I can't think of three actors who you could get who would share any sort of process um so that's where it becomes my job to help facilitate a a process where we can all contribute and all make the work yeah but what you get with each of them is absolutely brilliant and virtuosic and allows them to trill all over the (laughs) all over the place okay um so taking um a step away from the production Blue Orange. And um, what were you spoke about your beginnings in theatre, but you have had um, work in the arts. You were a DJ. Like, what um, has like been your journey in a way? Uh, I like got your... on the two five seven from Stratford. Uh, <laughs> no, what's my journey? Um, I don't even know. I can't even really. I'm trying to work out where it starts, and I think it starts with my granddad uh, doing magic tricks and paintings. Um, but I think the magic tricks, because what the magic tricks did was that he then started buying me boxes of Paul Daniels magic sets. Both of those men died this year. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so and, and teaching me how to do these tricks. Um, and then I started doing it, and then I started doing little performances for the family. Uh, just before dinner, set up cups and balls or floating five-pound note or whatever it is I was going to do. Uh, <laughs> So I guess that's where I started performing, and that was at the age of about six or seven, uh, and I did that up until 15. At the age of 11, I remember a woman called Mrs. Bellamy coming into my primary school, 10 or 9, coming into my primary school, and saying that I should... I was a naughty kid, uh, uh, for the reasons I probably mentioned earlier. Yeah, Yeah, well, (laughs) rebellion, single-parent family low income, all sorts of things contributing to her having to be out and work as much as possible, mm-hmm. me not necessarily having the discipline um, or attention that I craved, wanted, needed at the time. Uh, but it meant that I was a bit of an attention-seeking child but would do it through being naughty, being mm-hmm. disruptive. Um, I guess I was also kind of street smart, which also meant I got into trouble because I got bored quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something there that, that I discovered actually you can find attention in other ways. You can perform, you can sing, you can dance, you can be on stage and they will clap at the end and that's lovely, isn't it? Then you feel really special. Uh, and so I kind of ended up following that into secondary school, got the part of the scarecrow in The Wiz, played Len in Gut Girls, Sarah Waters' Gut Girls. Um, so all sorts of little 
explorations. And I wandered down to Theatre Royal Stratford East one day and found out they had a youth theatre, which mm-hmm. I was far too petrified to walk into because it was in a poor cabin with a frosted window and I could just see all bodies and they weren't me and I weren't them. And so I went <laughs> home again and came back the next week and built up the courage to go in. Uh, and then that was it, joining the youth theatre kind of opened everything for me so Mm -hmm. I suddenly had a place a safe space to play and investigate and define who I was and who I wanted to be Uh, and I could dress wacky and I could say all sorts of outlandish stuff Um, and whilst I was doing that so up until 11 pretty much a white kid in a white family Mm -hmm. Uh, then I go to secondary school and this stuff called hip-hop starts to work its way towards me through some friends Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I become aware I guess of of Black culture, black history, the struggle, the migration, slavery, the Caribbean, all of it, which I had a really loose childlike understanding of. Mm-hmm. But then I go, oh, that's part of me. I'm So I start buying as much hip-hop as I can around the age of about 13, 14, tape cassettes, CDs. Um, then we start a rap group, because that's what you do. Uh, <laughs> then I realize I'm the shit one, so they keep rapping and I start DJing. Uh, and then I'm buying records, and then I'm on a pirate radio station. I say all this like it just happened. Like, I applied to be on it and mm-hmm. saw an advert in a paper and went to sixth form to study media studies, performing arts, and English language with the intention of being either an actor or a drama teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, whilst I was doing all that, this DJing stuff's really starting to take mm-hmm. off, and I'm doing clubs at 16 and bars and boat parties and all sorts of weird things. Um, and I say to my mum, give me two years, let me drop out of college, and if I haven't made a success of it, mm-hmm. I'll go back to college. And she says, all right, cool. don't get it wrong. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, she's always just supported yeah. any whim of mine. Well, they're clearly not whims, but they could have been at mm-hmm. the time. Um, so I do that, and I, I jump from the pirate station I'm on in South London, in West Norwood, and I live in Stratford. Uh, I'm going... It was like five o'clock every Sunday morning or something like Ooh. that. I traveled to West Norwood, aged That's when she knows, 16. like, you know, yeah, he I wants, he's going after yeah, it. Yeah, this is it. He <laughs> cares. Uh, they can't see me clutching my record back to my shoulder here. <laughs> um, so I did that. And then I was in a bar somewhere playing and I was scratching two records together because I started to get some skills eventually. Uh, and this woman came over and she said, do you want to come and join our pirate radio station? I said, yeah, but can I just play hip hop? Because I, I was playing everything. Um, yeah like Sunday morning reggae, Destiny's Child, whatever was going on. Uh, so so I do that. Um, and I do that quite successfully. I, I create this radio show called Tales from the Legend, which has all of your favourite UK hip-hop rappers coming in to have a little rap. So people like Sway, people like Estelle, people like Roots Maneuver, Rodney P, Kaiser, Kalashnikov, all of the names that then go on to, to make something of themselves as UK hip-hop grows. Um, what I didn't know is there was a man uh, who would come and sit in a car outside the radio station every whatever night it was on Tuesday who was setting up a brand new radio station called BBC One Extra. His name is Wilbur Wilberforce and he also helps set up KISS FM. He's mm-hmm. kind of the man who sets up lots of our best radio stations yeah. at the start and then they fall apart and he leaves. <laughs> um, and he, I got a phone call out of the blue one day that said, Hi, uh, my name's Wilbur, we'd like you to come and talk to us. We're at the BBC. And I went, wow, okay, made it. (laughs) Mum, made it. Uh, So I kind of had. I was the first person signed to One Extra at 18, did my first show there at 19, did my first ever show on Radio 1 before that. 
so yeah, it's just like this kind of roller coaster of mm-hmm. musical success for about five years, six years, playing Glastonbury, playing Ministry of Sound, touring Europe, touring the UK. I've been to every single town, city, hamlet <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> uh, they all look the same at 11 o'clock at night, so I couldn't tell you the difference. But um, I did lots of traveling, which was lovely. Um, and But whilst also doing that, I always kept a foot in theatre. So uh-huh. I'd always been doing both. Um, so lots of people say, why did you change from making music to yeah. making theatre and I'm like I haven't I've always done music mm-hmm. and I've always done theatre uh, and for me they're almost the same thing they're about creating a, an evening mm-hmm. for people a shared experience mm-hmm. if you want to use that well, walking through um, the audience journey in Blue Orange I heard some you know Monaco and Brandy and then during the interval there was like some you know strong vibes being set up there yeah. what was like the thought process behind the soundtrack to the, the soundtrack show? so it's well ultimately uh, it's hospital radio which again is like always this really gleeful, blithe, slightly anodyne music, which isn't going to help anyone get better. I was <laughs> loving it. Yeah, good. But you weren't ill. You didn't yeah. need to recover. Um, but what ultimately what it's telling you is time, time and place. Uh, so all of those songs are all from the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all, like I say, quite pleasant songs. Some of them have got references to mental health issues or a line in it, her mind wasn't straight or something that just helps. No one's going to pick that up. It's us having fun, really. Um, But yeah, so for me, uh, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, there's a Bill Brewster book which talks about the role of the shaman going all the way back to kind of early humanity, uh, early civilization, and that figure of the shaman who orchestrates an experience for all gathered. Uh, and for me, that is the role of the DJ. That is the role of the director. Mm-hmm. The, it's the same job. Amazing. Talk about other creative influences, mm-hmm. um, like other art forms that you kind of look to for inspiration in either your research for a particular show or project um, and just other art that you enjoy. Other art that I enjoy. Um, people are always shocked that I don't watch enough movies or watch TV drama. I'm shocked TV that I don't. A particular thing. <laughs> yeah, I know, but like everyone's like all these great new ones, you know. Ever since long form TV drama like yeah. The Wire and Breaking Bad and all that stuff, but I'm like, not watched The Wire. I watched three series and then I couldn't remember <laughs> where I was, and it all started to look the same, and it all got confusing. Um, so I don't really do other forms of drama. I love books. I love novels. Um, like, I love movies, because mm-hmm. a movie is compact. It's like a, a night at the theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of have to be in the mood for that, because I've got this weird thing, I've told myself that movies are really, really long. So I can happily sit down and watch a four-hour King Lear <laughs> with no interval. But if you tell me that Free Willy's on, I'm like, oh, gosh, I've not got seven hours for Free Willy. <laughs> Apparently, it's only 120 minutes. Who exactly. knew? Um, uh, art galleries, I like. Uh, I don't. Again, I don't feel like I know enough about contemporary art and the history of visual art, but I've got eyes and a brain Mm -hmm. and I can look at stuff and it affects me in ways. Um, I guess when I'm researching, when I'm making something, uh, I nearly, I nearly always start with the music of the world, of the time, of the place. Um, if, If there are references to a character liking a particular music, I'll seek that out. Uh, if it's, 1974 South Africa, then I'm going to find as much music prior to 1974 South Africa as possible Mm -hmm. and immerse myself in it. Uh, A play I did called Scrappers was all about kind of 
small personal revolution, I guess. So lots of songs by Woody Guthrie and people like that. Um, uh, and then books, really. Like, yeah, books. I remember growing that my grandfather just every single surface of every single wall and every mm. single shelf just had books, readers, things he got from Reader's Digest or old kind of ancient-looking tomes that <laughs> dust came off when you turn the covers. But I've always been obsessed with books. I've always self-educated as mm -hmm. well. So I, again, I kind of feel like I'm untrained with regards to directing. I didn't study on any course. I just did it one day. I uh, figured it, but you were really good at it. So. <laughs> I know, I let other people tell me that, I guess. Um, uh, but yeah, I think self... Some people can't do that. Some mm -hmm. people, like, need, need to be shown yeah. or need to be have someone assessing them or be tested. I'm like, I hate tests, mm -hmm. I hate exams, I hate having to prove that I've learned a particular amount of stuff to be yeah. able to do the thing. So I just like reading bits and absorbing bits. So with Blue Orange, that was a field day for me to mm -hmm. be able to suddenly read so many books on subjects that I knew so little about prior to, which yeah. now I, I'm not any sort of authority on, but I have an understanding of it. And that's kind of something I love about plays. You learn about these worlds and these things that you would never learn about. So mm -hmm. like David Haig wrote a play, I can't remember what it's called, uh, but where he, the lead character is a meteor meteorologist. Um, uh, and so David Haig can tell you so much about the weather at all <laughs> points. He's like, no, well, that's because of da, 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 da. And it's similar. It's like, I feel like I could have a really decent argument about why there are so many Afro-Caribbean people. Mm -hmm. Diagnosed with mental health issues against the rest of the population. I, yeah. You know, I've read lots on that subject. Your approach to theatre making, how do you approach a new project? And, for instance, how does Blue Orange compare to the work and preparation that you would have done for Into the Woods? Oh, that's so different. Uh, Into the Woods, uh, I listened to the music for a year, basically much to the annoyance of my partner <laughs> and anyone else who happened to be anywhere near me while I was in that place. Um, so, I guess hugely different, but but ultimately not hugely different. There is is a process, which is I want to know who all of the people are in the world that we're going to have to create. I want to know what the world is that we're going to have to create. I want to work with people to help do that, so designers and design teams, creative teams. Uh, there's an extraordinary amount of research that goes into it with regards to context, uh, and contextualizing the existence of these characters in this world that is absolutely false, but we have to make it appear real, uh, or not, but we have to make a decision about how real or false we want it to to read us. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, I guess I, I do a thing where I, I start breaking the text down and it, um, sifting for various bits of data, facts, names, interests, dislikes, character relationships, which is a brief exercise when you're dealing with three characters mm -hmm. when you're doing Into the Woods and there are 24 named characters it takes quite a while <laughs> um, lots of pictorial research lots of visiting places uh, so with Blue Orange we went to the Maudsley twice uh, speak to professionals who work in the industry with Into the Woods we went to Audley Edge twice uh, and, and it's just about absorbing as much of of the world as you can that mm -hmm. is uh, specific to the the content the content of the play, and then trying to regurgitate that in some that's probably not the best phrase, is it? But some <laughs> useful way of 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 getting it back out and and shaping it and molding it so it becomes a, a total experience. Mm -hmm. And when you went to the Maudsley, did you? I mean, 
Did you come across any people who you feel rep- were represented in Blue Orange? Or people who... Like, Without being too explicit, I've certainly met Robert. Wow. Certainly met Robert. And and I kind of met someone who was quite similar to, to Bruce as well, in terms of the compassion and the, the kind of um, benevolent do-gooder. I really care. I want to change the world. Mm. I want to... Uh, asking people, you know, do you do alliance crossed between patients and staff, and and do do you become friends, and do you miss people, and all those things mm. that that are important in this play. Um, but without naming any names, we certainly met Robert, a, a hubristic, uh, self-centered, self-conceited, arrogant man who thought he was the answer to everybody's problems. Wow. Quite type your complex. I mean, I've just assumed. <laughs> yeah, but this is it. You know, egomaniacs, mm-hmm. undiagnosed. Yeah, just roaming around trying to fix everyone else before they fix themselves. Yeah, yeah. I read a brilliant thing this morning on the British blacklist, which said when you're pointing at someone, remember three fingers are pointing back at you. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, isn't it really powerful? As soon yeah. as you realise it, because like you can go around like either being mad at the world and like pointing fingers, but then always take a minute to reflect at what that's saying about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. It's the um, the biblical version of the thing in your eye. <laughs> <laughs> Don't point out the speck of dust in someone else's eye when there's a plank of wood in your own. <laughs> I've never heard that it's, one. It's, I'm sure it's, it's <laughs> paraphrasing, but it's something like that. Isn't yeah. It? Um, okay. Um, and I'm not sure if we touched on this, but I'll ask it again. Mm-hmm. What do you want audiences to take away from Blue Orange? Their own opinion. Okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> so all I ever want anybody to take away from a, from a piece of work. That's why I make work. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, of course, there are bigger issues, and that's why I chose this particular play to put on to help inform, provoke, challenge opinions. Um, what actually drew you to the text? All of the things that I'm interested in. Marginalised voices, disempowerment, disenfranchisement, those that we don't get to hear from. Uh, and this play does that exceptionally. And that's kind of why I made the choice to keep that character on stage the entire time. Even mm-hmm. when he's dismissed, he's there. He's the one we're talking about. He's the one they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget him. Um so yeah, all of I think all of the work I I put on stage, including Into the Woods and Scrappers and Sisway Banzi is Dead, uh, and I was looking at the ceiling and then I saw the sky and the blacks and the boys all explore a very similar theme yeah. ultimately, which is about giving power to the disempowered. Mm. Now that you said it about the moat in particular, like and having Daniel always present, that's really. It's like it comes across really well because ultimately there are moments where it could seem as if he's just like a side note to the story of these like two co-workers who yeah. are just trying to I mean in a way get on and but just yeah. but have their own personal battle and there's yeah, a exactly. professional dispute and a personal dispute and what I love is that at any point you can look over and he's there mm-hmm. but he's not just getting up and going for a walk when he wants to it's there's very specific times that he moves where I go let's remember him let's remember him yeah Okay, cool. Um, and what are your future aspirations for working um, in theatre? Or life? <laughs> yeah, I've got to work in theatre forever. No, that's a joke. <laughs> uh, I love theatre. I love storytelling. That's what I want to do. And I want to enable other people to tell their stories. And I want to find a more interesting range of stories and storytellers mm-hmm. to tell those stories. Um, so, I guess, in, in layman talk... The aspiration is to be an artistic director of a building, which is kind of what I feel I've, feel I've been w- working towards. Um, 
immediately I know what I'm doing. So the next thing I do is a play called Wishlist by Catherine Sopa at the mm-hmm. Royal Exchange, which will come down to the Royal Court in January, be on the Royal Exchange in September. Uh, then I'm doing a huge adaptation with April DeAngelis of, uh, I want to say Victorian, but I think it's pre-Victorian. Uh, let's call it Victorian for now. Uh, <laughs> Victorian classic. Um, and that will kind of be the last big thing I do at the Royal Exchange as Associate Artistic Director. Uh, and then get back out on my bike, see who wants me. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I guess I guess there are plans to return to London at some point. Uh, and keep, like I say, I just want to keep making work. Mm. And I, I feel... As a young man, I was incredibly political, but really political, uh, an activist, going on marches and joining the Socialist Workers' Party and things mm-hmm. like that. And I feel like as I've grown up, my politics have transmuted into theatrical activism. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where my interest is at the moment, I guess. And yeah. so I want to continue to be a a political with a small p, force for change, mm-hmm. um, within our own sector, but also using what we can do with our sector, which is storytelling to yeah. allow people to, to experience other lives. Yeah, especially because um, a lot of the time people find it very difficult to engage with politics and storytelling is like almost like a sneaky way of getting in, like, not yeah. an agenda. It makes it sound like you're, you know, Nobody scheming. has a problem <laughs> engaging with storytelling. Yeah, we do exactly. it ourselves. We, yeah. we, and we walk like, home and we turn it into a story. Yeah, and um, you put like, a human attachment or like experience in like a story that people can relate to themselves and then it puts it into like perspective as well yeah and i think theater more than almost any other art form possibly the the first person perspective novel Mm -hmm. is one up than this but theater is the best medium for allowing an audience to experience other lives or to take the line, um, walk a mile in another man's shoes sort of thing. Um, because you are there, you live it with that person, you see the experience, you can look around their world, you don't have to look at them, you can look at other people and see how they're reacting to mm. them. So you get this complete 360 of an individual's world or a group of people's like characters' worlds. Um, so yeah, let's keep sneaking politics in through the back door. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's everything. Cool. High five. Boom. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. 